and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on events, policies and ideas that will shape the world. From the European Council on Foreign Relations, my name is Vesela Cherneva and I'm its Deputy Director. This week, we're going to take a closer look at Belarus, which was pushed outside of the headlines in Europe. Unfortunately, I could add. That is why we want to discuss the current situation, but we will also take some time to explore how we got here and discuss implications for the wider neighborhood in Europe. I'm very happy to welcome Andrew Wilson, Senior Policy Fellow at ECFR, and author of a new book, which is called Belarus, The Last European Dictatorship. It's actually the second edition of a book Andy wrote 10 years ago, which he expanded and reworked, and we're very, very excited about it. We will also have Nico Popescu, the director of Wider Europe program at ECFR, as well as Pavel Slunkin, visiting fellow at ECFR, an expert on all Belarus-related issues, who is unfortunately not in Minsk anymore, but in Lviv, but he's our Minsk voice in any case. Thank you all very much for joining. So we can talk about Belarus now, but actually how we got here is something that people often forget. This week, we had the 19th birthday of uh, Mr. Gorbachev, the last president of uh, the Soviet Union, who back then made it possible for countries like Belarus to declare independence. Since um, for the last 26 years, Mr. Lukashenko has ruled Belarus, I think we should try to remember how did it look like the Belarusian independence? How did this road to nationhood look like? Andy, maybe we can start with you. Well, I guess the cliche in 1989 or 1991 was that Belarus didn't have much of a history or that it was very neo-Soviet or somehow even Russia light. It didn't actually declare independence in 1991, sort of upgraded its constitutional status. It didn't make as radical a break with the Soviet past as most other Soviet republics did. I mean, the problem wasn't that Belarus didn't have a history, all countries have a history, but that that history was a kind of series of false starts, an early Slavic period, a medieval period. I won't go into the details now, but the 20th century was another one of those uh, new starts, and there wasn't much continuity between the historical periods. It's only recently that Belarus has been sort of starting to stitch them together again. So, yes, they were kind of very neo-Soviet in identity terms because they'd lost touch with previous periods in their history. But there were still political choices to be made if you're asking what independence looked like. Belarus was always close to Russia, but in the early 90s, it looked a lot more like its neighbour Ukraine. Lukashenko only came to power in 1994. I mean, that's only three years, but slightly longer than that, given that he didn't really manage to change the political system until 1996. So for five years, Belarus was a bit more like Ukraine. Chaotic, would-be democracy. It made some steps towards a market economy. So it was Lukashenko's choices to reverse all that that made Belarus what it then became. And he was quite lucky in that First of all, Yeltsin needed to make deals for political reasons in the 90s. And then Putin came along in the year 2000. 
their individual relationship was never very good. You can ask me why if you like. But economically, the noughties brought about, there was a much higher oil price that kind of cemented the relationship between the two states. Cheap oil and gas that Russia supplied to Belarus allowed Lukashenko to build the kind of state that he wanted, which was was very neo-Soviet with a kind of strong state sector economy and social contract. Belarus would have actually been more isolated without that kind of aid. Uh, And that's kind of interesting historical counterfactual. That period didn't last. And we'll talk more about how Russia has been rather more parsimonious with its support recently. But that was the kind of golden age when everybody thought of Belarus as basically a Russian satellite in the noughties. Pavel, you were probably not born at the time that Andy is talking about, but how Russian or how Belarusian was the first decade of the, I mean, the, the 90s, basically, for, for Belarus? How did it feel? Yeah, you did a very good point about the date of birth. I was born in 1988, and like the, the beginning of the modern independence of Belarus has passed through my life, like from from the childhood till uh, where I am now. And like the identity of Belarusians, it has been changing like from the beginning till now or all the time. Even like how we call the country in English, I remember we called Belarusia, and then it was, we were Belarusians, and then it was transformed in some time, maybe in the beginning of like 2000 to Belarus and Belarusians. So I would say that this was the point when we self-identified us, like not the part of Russia culture, or even I would say it's not about the culture, more about being a part of a political society, uh, Russia's political society, when we understood that we are a sovereign country. So this is an example from my, my, my personal life. And I would say that the period that has started after the Crimea events in 2014, they really changed the situation in the country in Belarus. Because our society, it's usually seen that Belarus hasn't been changing much under the Lukashenko rule. It's both true and false, as Lukashenko is a very Soviet-minded person, and he didn't uh, want to change the country, and everything he was doing, he was trying to keep the Soviet mentality, keep like Belarus as uh, more Soviet as it can be. But the society uh, has been developing despite of these processes. And this is also one of the reasons why this political crisis of 2020 appeared. This is a very important point, that Belarus seems to always have been in the past decades in some sort of a position or opposition to Moscow, and it has defined its identity through some sort of sovereignty which was quite limited, which was economically extremely limited and probably still is. So maybe I can get also Nico in the conversation here. If you think about the eastern neighbors before the Ukraine crisis, Nico, what do you think was Russia's kind of view and how did that change so that it changed also the whole neighborhood? To a large extent, Belarus, we said an interesting thing about Belarus is that Belarus has been the first country in in this eastern neighborhood of EU, which has managed to build a consolidated authoritarian regime already from the second half of the 90s, 
at the time it was unique and it had this moniker that stuck to it, you know, the last dictatorship in Europe. But of course, with time, we see today that several other countries have arrived first and consolidated to authoritarian regimes, which are not necessarily more relaxed and more liberal than the political system that Belarus has. So de facto, Belarus is no longer the last dictatorship in Europe because there's, there's more dictatorships in Europe these days than, than 20. Right. Well, I mean, that we can discuss details and all countries are quite different in, in the way they exercise and apply autocratic systems. But of course, what we have today is Azerbaijan has such a system that is very, very centralized and very autocratic. And of course, Russia has gone down the same route. And of course, we've also seen that somewhat, well, it's not paradoxical, it's logical, but with the protests in Belarus that started last year, I think that's one of the reasons why Russia today engaged in a new round of tightening of the political system and the new round of restrictions imposed on on the political system, on the opposition. And in this sense, just at the moment where uh, the political system built by Lukashenko looked at its most fragile, that also had ripple-on negative effects on Russia's political system, and by the way, also on possibly on the way the Navalny affair has evolved. So you think that looking at 2014 and the Ukraine invasion by Russia, uh, there was not much thinking on the part of Russia on the regional implications of, of this. After the occupation of Crimea, Lukashenko was started to think if I will be the next one. So the politics of Belarus has changed a lot. Like all the time we were calling ourselves a main ally of Russian Federation. But since those times, Belarus has started increasingly building up relations with the European Union and with the United States. Because they understood that just relying on Russia may cause the same situation as it happened in Ukraine. And also because Lukashenko loves his power more than anything in the world. So he understands that his own life depends on Belarus independence. So he had to do anything possible to like hatch those risks. And Belarus, those times uh, when the Crimea uh, was occupied, Belarus was under uh, European and American sanctions. And because of not recognizing annexation of Crimea uh, and also criticizing like the, the, the conflict in Ukraine, not supporting uh, Russia very much, it gave the European Union and the USA a chance to rethink its politics uh, on Belarus. And Belarus used this possibility very efficiently. Like the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs has started building like a real foreign policy of, of a sovereign state. And the political prisoners has been released. Some internal processes, they, they were democratized. We have seen more liberal attitude from, from the police towards uh, the protesters and towards the opposition. And this also helped to the civil society to be grown up. And what we see now is that those processes that have been happening in the country, they are now seen very well. And Lukashenko is trying to burn it once again. Andy, when do you think the Lukashenko era can come to an end? I mean, looking at what happened in the last two and a half decades, and especially in the last two years, do you think that there is a tipping point in a regime like this? 
Well, Lukashenko is a great survivor. He's been in office for 27 years now, and he's reinvented himself several times. The most important reinvention was in 2014, as, as Pavel says. Uh, the situation changed. He didn't. Uh, his motive was just to stay in power. But in order to stay in power, he needed to preserve and strengthen Belarusian sovereignty. And that had all sorts of other corollaries. Pavel listed some of them. But there was a kind of recognition that statehood and sovereignty needed some cultural props as well. So you had a period of so-called soft Belarusianization, not entirely top-down, some of it was bottom-up, but mostly it was for, you know, raison d'etat to strengthen this sovereignty project, if you like. The other was that Russia became much more tougher in its dealings with Belarus, uh, much less generous uh, in terms of economic subsidisation. So you had a period where the old state sector had to be slimmed and a new private economy was encouraged to grow, particularly in the IT sector to help pay the bills. So all of these factors mature in August of last year. Although we saw savage repression, there had been a slight political liberalisation, although not in the year preceding the election. Lukashenko was already tightening up. You had this new middle class. You had the effects of soft Belarusianisation creating this new patriotism. So the answer to your question is, can Lukashenko reinvent himself again, given that he's bet everything now on Russian support? And if you like, making a 180 degree handbrake turn, uh, trying to push back against everything that's happened in the last seven years. Is that possible? Well, you can see him changing track on culture and becoming more pro-Russian again. You can see him making some concessions in terms of sovereignty, but he won't you know, hand the country over completely to Russia. Otherwise, you know, he's out. And the most difficult is probably the economy. It's very difficult to reverse the formula of the last seven years and grow the state sector instead of the private sector. That just doesn't make sense. So this, this is very difficult for him. You know, what is his formula going forward? He has some kind of passive assets, I mean, coercion isn't passive, but it's um, there's not much behind it. He has the support of a lot of people in the state apparatus, and that's quite big and numerous. And he has the support of Russia. But does he have a real project to keep himself going in the longer term? This time, I, I rather doubt it. I just wanted to ask you if you could say just a couple of words about the economy and its relation to the Russian, its dependency on, on Russia, basically, so that our listeners can get an idea how this relationship functions. Well, the double dependence, unlike the other states in Eastern Europe, the states of the EU Eastern Partnership, Belarus still predominantly trades with Russia, uh, particularly in export. It produces a lot of Soviet-style manufactured goods, which traditionally it sells in Russia. There was a target of a third, a third, a third, diversified trade, mm-hmm. a third to Russia, a third to the EU, a third to the rest of the world. But Belarus hasn't met that target. So trade is one, and the other is energy, uh, that the big subsidies uh, that have kept the Belarusian economy going and the state sector in particular have been cheap oil and gas. Cheap gas is perhaps more obvious. It's the main source of heating in Belarus. 
but it's also used in a lot of these energy intensive state sector industries so that keeps their cost cost down but strangely belarus is a kind of offshore oil state as well it was the kind of westernmost part of the soviet energy export system so there are two state of the art oil refineries in belarus it makes sense to position them as near your final market as possible and then you exploit refined oil and other products to the west so belarus still does that and that has been the traditional thing both keeping the economy going and keeping it close to russia so basically what you have is russian oil coming in refined in belarus belarusian refineries and the oil products being exported elsewhere bringing revenue uh, exactly. to the belarusian state which obviously works only if the price of the oil is very very low to begin with Yeah, and we've seen more and more disputes over that in, in recent years, with uh, Russia becoming much less generous. In five, ten years ago, those subsidies were about 20% of Belarusian GDP. Now probably uh, only about five, six, seven. Pavel, how much do you feel of that in Belarus, really? I remember people in Minsk telling me they would go to the Baltic states for shopping, they would actually use a lot of their Schengen visas. But at the end of the day, the middle class that Andy was talking about is culturally much closer to Europe, I think, than one realizes. Yeah, uh, especially if we grade it like by, by the age. The youth, the, the people of my age or uh, the younger one, they are thinking themselves like Europeans and they don't dream of coming to Moscow or to Smolensk to see and to, to live there. But uh, where do usually Belarusians spend their weekend? They go to Vilnius, they go shopping, they uh, having some coffee with, with friends uh, and then they come back. And Minsk is pretty European capital. It, it gives, it gave, like, let, let's say so, pretty good opportunities for, for the middle class also. So Belarusians had those opportunities to live in Belarus, uh, to have vacations in Europe or spend some weekend there. But mentally, we can also range it in, in different dimensions. When we were talking about politics, I would say that the majority of Belarusians, when this uh, Ukraine, uh, Ukraine crisis happened, they were supporting Russia. Uh, also, I would say, if I'm not mistaken, there were around 62% of Belarusians who supported Russia's actions in Crimea. When we talk about those uh, rights for LGBTQ, uh, like the, the, these issues, this agenda of the European countries, it is very well used by the propaganda, Belarusian and Russian one. Like you see, they are culturally different. And I would say that this is pretty popular among society. Even among youngsters, they, they don't really feel that this agenda of protecting the rights of different categories of people should be in the agenda of their own country. So, like, in their perspective of good life, good level of life, Belarusians want to be Europeans, but they don't want to live like Europeans and they, they, they sometimes they want to have better relations, political relations with Russia, but have a, a level of life uh, like in, in Berlin or in Paris. 
And also reacting to what Andy said in the political dimension also, we shouldn't underestimate Lukashenko's political instincts. Like everything that uh, has happened uh, in Belarus, this still doesn't mean that he will fall in the, this year or the, the next year. He has shown so much knowledge of how to rule the country, even besides of what the population of Belarus thinks of him. And this concentration camp that is being built now in Belarus, if the society, international society, also won't react on that, this will mean that we could have very bad example for other Eastern partnership countries. Right. And for the Belarusians themselves, I guess. Nico, thinking about the, the international community, but also thinking more precisely about the EU, you obviously have a, a, a Belarusian society which is very westernized in many respects, a relationship with Russia which is very, what should I say, full uh, economically, politically, militarily. It's, it's very organic somehow. And the EU does not recognize Lukashenko as a uh, legitimate president. The sanctions against him and 87 other people have been prolonged. What can really the EU do more? I don't really think that EU has many chances to influence the situation because the European Union hasn't created enough leverage in the previous years in Belarus. Even Russia was not so successful to, to do it in Belarus. Even sometimes European politicians think that if Putin wants to Lukashenko to leave, but it doesn't work like that. Uh, Lukashenko has uh, built the, the country that uh, depends only on his will. It depends economically on Moscow, but Russia doesn't have so so much leverage to push him, to make him doing something uh, that is in the interest of Moscow. And European Union just doesn't have any leverage that could be used in, in, in the modern society. Like if the European Union stop uh, buying the oil refinery products from uh, Minsk, this will for sure influence the, the situation uh, in Belarus, but we don't know in, in what direction. So I would say that the changes that has uh, taken place in Belarus, like in the society of Belarus uh, recently, will mean that the political changes will still happen. Maybe not now, maybe in two, three years, but they will. And Russia is now will be trying to build its own infrastructure to push Lukashenko to let for this infrastructure to, uh, be, to be built. Well, uh, Pavel is right about leverage. But there is illogicality here. The number of individuals and companies sanctioned this time is much less than after a previous election in 2010, uh, whereas the level of repression here is, is much, much higher. In fact, it's the highest anywhere in Europe since the end of the Cold War. Higher levels of sanctions may not generate leverage, but there is that question of consistency. Secondly, the opposition. We need to support it morally, financially and physically. There is a, a difficult balancing act here. We don't want to encourage necessarily everybody to leave the country because that would leave Lukashenko unchallenged. But there are uh, increasing issues of diaspora, practical support for people who fled the country. And thirdly, as Pavel says, there are two big economic questions. One is the oil and gas question. You know, if we did stop buying those products, that would have a big effect. And the other is uh, money and debt. In the past, Belarus has been able to tap 
bond markets. Ironically, it did so last year before the election and before the repression after the election. We have to make it very, very clear that that route is closed off. Finally, what happens to the IT industry in Belarus? It was growing very, very quickly. It made up about 7% of GDP, hence the new middle class being so predominant in the protests. If that industry is, is forced out of the country, certain companies have to offshore. The EU can play a role in supporting that. Nico, I don't know if you want to comment on any of this, but I would like maybe to finish with you on what this all means for the wider region, but also for Russia's power in the region. Yes, I'd like perhaps to kind of point to a few silver linings. Uh, in the European Union and in North America and in the US, you have quite a lot of uh, conversation about you know, the rise of illiberal democracies, people's disappointment with the functioning of democratic systems. Even inside the EU, you have illiberal tendencies. You have the same in the Balkans. But actually, if you look at European Union's eastern neighbors, you have a huge demand for, for democracy and pluralism. You have it now in Belarus. It came up completely unexpected to most observers. In Ukraine, you still have a society that, uh, after several failures and post-revolutionary disappointments, still wants greater pluralism, doesn't want a strong hand, doesn't want an authoritarian system. You have a similar situation in Armenia, where you had the revolution a couple of years ago. But even now, after Armenia lost the war, you still have a very high societal demand for pluralism and democracy. The same goes for Moldova. And in this sense, uh, besides the fact that most of the European Union's eastern neighbors have deep political crises, these are crises in which you have populations and societies that want more democracy, more pluralism, less corruption. So these are kind of crises which create pressures for, for a positive dynamic. It might not work everywhere immediately, but I think as a kind of long-term expectation, the societies in these countries have been growing more and more mature and more and more willing to have democratic systems. And very few of the societies actually want to retain uh, consolidated autocratic systems. Another element, because you asked about Russia, I think there is this conversation in the European Union and America, do sanctions on Russia work? And very often people look at the fact that Russia still controls Crimea and is not willing to give it up. Uh, they look at Russian monetary reserves and they look quite healthy. But actually what is very often overlooked is that Russia has been systematically eliminating and limiting subsidies to its political partners abroad. You do feel that Russian foreign policy has a significant less cash than it had 10 or 15 years ago. Russia has been eliminating subsidies and support to Belarus. You know, even to former president of Ukraine, Yanukovych, Russia was not really generous when it came to, to financial support. Russia has been not very generous with supporting some of its other political partners. So on a wider scale, uh, I do notice a situation where Russia has been saving up uh, money and funds for itself. Uh, but actually, Russian foreign policy has been very active on the military front and diplomatic front. But the financial underpinnings of Russian foreign policy look much more modest than they did before Western sanctions have been applied on, on Russia. Thank you very much. This is, I think, what we needed, the silver lining. 
both on the power of autocrats, but also on the positive effect of sanctions. So thank you very much for that. We have one thing left to do in this podcast, and this is our bookshelf section. Andy, maybe we can start with you. I'm reading Andrea Bernstein, American Oligarchs. But that's a really useful reminder that oligarchy isn't just a Russian or an East European thing. It's a pretty grim tale. It's about the interaction between the Kushners and the Trumps. You may not want to read that now that we've seen the back of Trump, at least as president. But it's a a fascinating story of business, corruption and politics. Oligarchs, they're everywhere, it seems. Pavel, what is on your bookshelf? All my thoughts are now on Belarus, so uh, I'm reading the book Atlas Strike by Ayn Rand, and it's all about what is happening in my country. If we filter like the, the atmosphere of those times when the book was written, then it just described the situation very well. And I, I would recommend for those who want to understand Belarus as the country, the books of uh, Svetlana Alexievich. Like what, what is in our DNA is the book War Doesn't Have a Women's uh, Face, and the last one called Time Second Hand. This is about the collapse of the Soviet Union. And also it's very useful for those who study Russia. Nico. I'm reading two books. One is called Pork Barrel Politics, How Government Spending Determines Elections in a Polarized Era by Andrew Sidman. And the other book I'm reading is about the good old days when uh, you had uh, ambassadors that were not just extraordinary, but also plenty potentiary. And that book is called Renaissance Diplomacy, and it's written by Garrett Mattingly. And it's a nice book about those times when sending your instructions to an ambassador could have taken you know, two, three weeks, which gave much more powers to ambassadors than they have now. Very good, because I want to recommend again a book about ambassadors. It's by our council member, Robert Cooper. It, it's called The Ambassadors, Thinking About Diplomacy from Machiavelli to Modern Times. It's a book I intend to read very soon, and I have been really looking forward to it coming out. But most of all, of course, I want to recommend Andrew Wilson's book, Belarus, The Last European Dictatorship that we discussed in this podcast. It's uh, published by the Yale University Press. We're going to put links uh, to all the books that we just uh, mentioned on our website. And if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know by writing about it. But above all, please give us a good rating and review on whichever platform you use to download this podcast. And for now, from Andrew Wilson, Nico Popescu, Pavel Swunkin and myself, Vesela Cherneva, it is goodbye. The research of this week's podcast is Lucy Haufenthal and our editor, Marlene Nevedin. <laughs>